We'll be studying 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10. As we continue through the book of 2 Corinthians, verse by verse. In the last century, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a book for children called The Two Towers. It's actually wonderful for adults as well. But in this book, he describes a Christ figure named Gandalf. Uh, Gandalf appears to die, and then he returns, seemingly, from the dead uh, and leads the good side to victory against the evil. So after he's in this book, after he had just returned and people are just realizing that he's actually back from the dead, he goes to visit a king, um, a king who had been kind of controlled by an evil imposter named Wormtongue. Wormtongue had taken control of the king's mind, and he lived in darkness. Uh, but he kind of spoke for the king. He stood out in front of this king. So Gandalf finally shows up to visit this king in person, and he's confronted by Wormtongue. And up to this point, Gandalf has only been portrayed as righteous and wise and gentle and good. And then when he speaks to Wormtongue for the very first time, He says, be silent and keep your forked tongue behind your mouth. I've not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a serving man. And then Wormtongue fell as if dead sprawled upon his face. So this change from the nice, gentle, kind Gandalf to this person who would actually speak boldly to someone who opposes him, this is kind of the same turn that Paul is making in 2 Corinthians at this point in the letter. Chapters 1 through 9, if you will, were written by Paul to those who had been deceived by the false teachers. They'd been deceived and were beloved members of the body. And he wrote them in a very gentle and tender way. But in chapter 10, we see the the tone shift. And he's not going to, to bandy crooked words with these serving men, these false teachers. He's going to deal with them in discipline and boldness if required. But he would much rather they submit to his authority so that there's been a turn, a change in tone that you will notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is God's holy and inspired word. Would you please stand as I read this inspired text? This is preserved by the Holy Spirit throughout the centuries for you this morning. Verse 1. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Amen. Please be seated. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, 
We certainly come to you in need of your Spirit's power. As we've read this text, these words seem to have flown over our heads in some cases. Holy Spirit, please take my faltering lips and use them to dispense your glorious treasures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the tone has changed. The tone has definitely changed. And you see this in verse 1 of chapter 10. Remember, this is a continuous letter as it was originally written. There's no chapter or verse divisions. But the tone is changed. And we know this by the, verse, the first verse in this chapter. Paul says, Now myself, I, Paul, literally. Why would he say that? He already introduced himself at the beginning of the letter. Well, that's because he's now addressing a new audience in particular. He's addressing the false teachers directly and specifically. And this is emphatic language. I, Paul, myself, three times he says who he is. And it reflects a necessary confrontation. It's as if, almost as if Paul takes the pen out of the, the scribe's hand and he starts writing himself, although we don't know if that happened. But it feels that way. He's saying, in effect, look, everyone who has been criticizing my ministry, contradicting me and and deceiving the flock, look, I'm writing to you now. And what does he write? What does he say? Well, he's still so gentle and kind. He says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And this points to something he's going to talk about later, which is that the weapons he's fighting with are not like the false teachers. He comes to them entreating them, in other words, wooing them by his love and his meekness and his gentleness, which reflects Christ. The weapons that he fights with certainly are much, much different. But then he he addresses them directly. He says, it's I who am humble when face to face, but bold when far away. That's what they've accused him of. That he's kind of this coward. He only writes bold letters. But face to face, he's just not really that impressive. These people who have challenged his authority, his calling, his ability, his sincerity, his effectiveness. Paul just points them to his gentleness and his meekness. And really the accusation of being a coward is ridiculous. And he goes into the reasons why in the next chapter. And really we know from the book of Acts and other letters that Paul was anything but cowardly. He would stand in front of an entire city screaming for his murder and be bold in his proclamation of the gospel. He's been through... Kind of like Gandalf, he's been through death and hell. And he's not going to be intimidated by these couple of ridiculous men. And Paul's gentleness and his humility are probably such that the men in question either hadn't met him or just didn't know all that he had done. Up to this time, Paul has been through so much. He's been beat. And it's all in the next chapter, as you'll see next week. But he's been beat He's been imprisoned, he's starved, he's been shipwrecked, and all of these things show that he is one of the most courageous men probably who has ever lived. So he's making sure in this very last part of really what is a long letter 
that the church sees the great contrast between him and his courage and the cowardice of the false teachers who are just throwing stones at him from a distance. The armchair quarterbacks of the church, if you will. And he continues begging. Verse 2, I'm begging you. I'm entreating you. I'm begging you. Listen to to the gentleness with which he even conducts himself when he's talking to false teachers who have destroyed the church. I'm begging of you that I might not have to show the boldness with such confidence as I will show when I arrive if you're still acting like this. He's begging them that he's not going to have to come with discipline. He's certainly not afraid to address them. He will deal with them in chapter 13 of this letter. He says that Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. He's crucified in weakness, but lives in the power of God. And we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. You see, Paul has a different perspective in the fight than his enemies. The false teachers think that he is like them, that he's going to fight by their rules, that he uses human tactics, which we'll talk about in a moment. And yet he follows this meek and gentle strategy of Jesus Christ. And explains how he fights this spiritual battle. And this is an example for us. That's why the title is The Spiritual War and Spiritual Weapons. Most of you know that for most of my adult life, I've studied warfare. That was my job. So there's a, there's a special and just a special part of Scripture. Any part of Scripture that kind of I can relate to in that way, I think is very... Very special because that's kind of how my brain has been wired over the past 30 years or so. We'll see three things, I think, that there really is a spiritual war. Number one, it's real. Number two, the weapons that we fight with are very different than the world would perceive these weapons. And thirdly, we'll talk about weapons effects, a military term that just means what do these weapons do? What are the weapons? What do they do? But there is a different way of fighting. There's a different way. Paul was coming at this this confrontation with these false teachers very differently than the false teachers expected. In the war between the states, the northern strategy, well, the southern strategy was a traditional strategy of warfare. The southern armies fought against other armies, other soldiers. Civilians were not considered military targets. Property was not considered on the table as a target. But the northern strategy was something called total war, and it was the first time that a civilized country had fought a total war. And it's a real pretty term, but it just means that civilians and private property are proper targets for an army. So rather than fighting only the southern soldiers, they made every civilian and their property Legitimate targets, Sherman's destruction of the Deep South, Sheridan's destruction of the Shenandoah Valley, are just the two most notable examples. But this was an all-pervasive strategy of the northern armies. So you can imagine the dismay in the southern armies when they actually were fighting a different kind of fight. And these actions were actually 
unfathomable by the whole watching world. It was a different way of warfare. It was two different views of how to fight a war. So Paul is actually showing us something very much the same. The false teachers are coming at him with all kinds of accusations and gossip and slander. And Paul is fighting a completely different fight. He's fighting a completely different way. But as we fight this battle, all Christians, all of you, if you are in Christ, and whether you're in Christ or not, you are part of this war. It's a spiritual battle. And there are very different rules used by the two sides in this fight. From the book of Genesis until the very end of time, there are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of God and a kingdom of Satan. And every human being is on one of those sides. And that's just a fact. It's very true. And they fight very differently. They use different rules and different tactics. And Paul talks about both. But he's confident that the meekness and gentleness of Christ is victorious. And we'll talk about why. So first of all, first point, there is a spiritual war. It's a real war. He says this in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're not. There is a real battle. Every one of you are part of this battle. So for me to think of myself as a soldier, well, I like that because I actually am or was for a long time. Some of you may be thinking, wait, I don't know if I like the thought of being a soldier. The reality is you are a soldier in one of these two armies, in one of these two battles. All Christians are in a war and this is not hypothetical. It's real. It's usually not fought with guns and fighter planes and tanks and bombs. Sometimes, we saw in Nashville, sometimes it is. Sometimes Satan takes his people and says, go kill Christians. And God in his providence allows this to happen for some reason beyond our pale. But Paul says, we live in this world, in the flesh, we walk in the flesh, but we don't fight like we walk in the flesh. We fight a spiritual war. We wage war differently, not according to the flesh. In Ephesians 6, remember, Paul says, we don't struggle against what? Flesh and blood. Our fight isn't against flesh and blood. Our fight primarily is not horizontal. Our fight is vertical. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, he says. So although we cannot see the battle, and it's really none of our business what goes on in that spiritual battle, our duty is to do what we do here on the earth. It truly still is a life and death struggle. It's an eternal, it's got eternal consequences. So it it behooves all of us to, to understand how the war is fought. How do we fight this battle? How do we fight this war? Because the consequences truly are eternal. If you're on the wrong side, you stand in rebellion against the holy God who created you. And you're condemned to eternal punishment. But if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, came and suffered and died for your sins, then you can have eternal life. So this is the context. The gospel is the context for all the weapons that are used on either side. So look at the worldly weapons that were used against Paul. I'm going to pull really from the rest of the letter. First of all, Paul, what are the, the worldly weapons that were used to attack Paul that he's addressing here? Well, in verse 10 in this chapter, he says that he was attacked for his preaching. 
His speech, his teaching, his speech is of no account, it says in verse 10. Literally, the Greek, it means nothing. His speech is nothing. I was at a pastor's conference, and there was this old pastor, and he was speaking. And he said, sometimes when a preacher preaches, it just feels like your words leave your mouth, and then they come out, and they fall into a little pile of debris in front of the pulpit. Well, this is what they're accusing Paul of, that his preaching is nothing. He was criticized for not being very exciting as a preacher, it would seem. Not very impressive as an orator. His speech isn't flowery. He's not entertaining. And from the Corinthians' culture, anyway, we know that they prized this, this, this grand oration of truth. And the false teachers, we think, were coming into the church and showing some grand and, and powerfully moving style of preaching. And Paul says, he addresses this in chapter 2 of this letter. He says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. In other words, we're not trying to, to peddle God's word and win favor, but we're men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. He's not trying to entertain. He's trying to speak in the sight of God. Coram Deo. In chapter 4 of this letter, he says, We've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. It seems the false teachers were using all these creative, kind of, kind of very culturally sensitive ways of just stating the truth. And Paul says, By an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to you. So his preaching was under attack. We see also in verse 10 that his character, sorry, his presence was under attack. Verse 10, it says his bodily presence is weak. This is another accusation they made of him. His physical presence is weak. There are some leaders who stand up and they just fill the room up. You've probably been around people like this at various times throughout your life. I remember um, just in all the, the different bases we lived, you can tell a wing commander, a base commander, who stands up and he's just kind of filling a, a position. And a wing commander or a leader who stands up and he literally fills the room with his presence. And certainly there's some, some, some God-given part to that dynamic. But Paul's attacked because his bodily presence is weak. Maybe it means his appearance. We don't know. Maybe it just means that he's not this exciting Corinthian orator that they're hoping for. But they're attacking his presence. So they're going to really the core of who he is and what he's been called to do. His preaching is bad and weak. His presence is weak. He's attacked for his character, which was thought to be questionable. They've called him fickle. In chapter 1, he addressed this. Was I vacillating when I changed my plans? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? So they've attacked his character as well. It seems they've attacked his doctrine. He's not, he's not winning very many converts. It's not working somehow. He addresses this in chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying the gospel is the gospel and God will use it how he will use it. 
He was also attacked for his poor connections. He doesn't have good letters of recommendation. In chapter 3, he says, I'm not coming with any letters of recommendation to you. I don't have a good resume that would commend myself to you. Ultimately, what you're reading in chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, is Paul's response to attacks that have come at him from every side. And he has been attacked physically before, but not by these people. These people are attacking his ministry, his character, to the very core of his mission. Calvin says of this passage that it applies not just to Paul, but to all gospel ministers. They carry an incomparable treasure in clay jars. Although they are compressed with infirmities, nevertheless, spiritual power of God is resplendent in them. Becomes, however, ministers of the word and pastors to be standard bearers going before others. And certainly there are none that Satan harasses more and are more severely assaulted or that sustain more numerous or dreadful onsets. And this is very real. And for this reason, when people talk to me about, I want to go into the ministry, well, I'm, I'm happy for you. But you need to know that this is a real fight. It's a real spiritual battle. And if you're going to stand up as a pastor, you're taking the standard and you're running. That was another thing the northern armies did is they would target the standard bearers. By the way, he's not carrying a weapon. He's carrying a flag. They would shoot them down. That's what Satan is doing as well. He's targeting the standard bearers. And he targets Paul. If he can squash Paul in this work, then he can squash the Corinthian church. But the application for us is to recognize that when these kinds of things happen to you in your life, your response should be the same as Paul. The meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Waiting upon the Lord. This is what David said in Psalm 37. That he would commit his way to the Lord and trust in him. That he's not going to fight back using worldly weapons. He's going to be still and wait for the Lord patiently. To refrain from anger. Because then God will bring forth your righteousness like the light. And your justice as the noonday sun. So the war certainly is. It's a different Way of fighting, it's also a very spiritual war. You see these things in your lives. All of us will see them as Christians. So what are these different weapons? Those are the enemy's weapons. The enemy actually uses those kinds of things to attack all Christians. And again, Paul chose not to defend himself. He chose to point to his weakness and his reliance on Christ. He chooses to spend and be spent for your souls, he tells the Corinthians. He says that his power is made perfect in weakness. He's going to boast of his weaknesses. So it's a very different view of the fight. So what are his weapons? This is the second point. What are the weapons that he's fighting with? So I want to just set something straight. For those of you who watch the news you're probably convinced that the U.S. military is very weak. Like, we're just barely holding on. All of these other countries are just so far surpassing capability that we don't know what's going to happen. It's all a lie. It's an absolute 100% lie. The U.S. military is unmatched in power and training and capability. 
What you're hearing is just the military-industrial complex trying to get more money spent on more weapons. That's it. We spend, last year, $800 billion on military. That's the U.S. budget for military. $800 billion. The next highest country is 200 to $250 billion, and that's China. We spend four times more than China on military weapons. After that, the next is Russia. They spend $70 billion. $800 billion, $70 billion. Ooh, we're afraid of Russia, right? Horrible, terrible. We spend more on our military than the next 10 countries combined. The U.S. military is powerful and mighty, and you have only to look at any one weapon system to see it. Everything's the best. Our tanks are the best. Our fighter jets are the best. Our bombers are the best. Our bombs are the best. Our soldiers are the best. Everything's the best. If you just look at an F-22 fighter, something I'm familiar with, it is a generational leap in capability from anything out there. The Chinese may have something that's comparable, but the next highest category of fighter plane will be demolished. Ten of them would be demolished by one F-22. It's hard not to be impressed when you look at the weaponry that the United States possesses. But the weapons of our warfare as Christians are not impressive to the world. Not impressive at all. The spiritual weapons that we are given, the world scoffs at. They're despised by the world. In 1 Corinthians, we read that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. We preach Christ crucified, and this is a stumbling block and folly to those who are serving Satan. And yet Paul still says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, it's powerful. It's not impressive to look at, but it's powerful. It doesn't look cool like an F-22, but it's powerful. And Paul says in verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons of our warfare. Well, what are they? You may not like this. I remember watching, uh, it was actually a, a pretty funny little clip, but it was Benny Hinn, and he said he's got a Holy Spirit machine gun. Like, or he wishes he had one. Like, this is, this is silly. The weapons of our warfare are not like the world's weapons. The Word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Prayer. Godly living. The fruit of the Spirit. Fellowship that we have here. The encouragement that we find together. All of these things you'll see in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul most clearly delineates what these weapons look like. And it's not an exhaustive list, but there's many of the things here. Remember, it all relates to the gospel. It all relates to the word. It all relates to the Holy Spirit, to our fellowship as saints. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Okay, so he's going to use a human metaphor. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all things, to stand firm. 
soldier of, of God, here's your, your weapon. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth is a weapon. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is a weapon. And shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel is a weapon. It's powerful to the, to the demolishing of strongholds. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of God. Our faith is a weapon. It's a defensive weapon. And offensive, I would argue, as well. Praying. Sorry. And take the helmet of salvation. The knowledge of your salvation, of your doctrine. This is a weapon. The, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication, prayers for all the saints. So our weapons are very different. And that passage just summarizes really the ordinary means of grace. I would say the ordinary weapons of grace. The word, the prayer, sacraments, godly fellowship. The fruit of the Spirit. The Word of God, the Gospel of God, reading the Word, preaching the Word is a weapon, memorizing, meditating, study, knowing your doctrine. Paul knew his doctrine. That's what makes him so confident. Private and corporate prayer, godly fellowship, love, forgiveness is a weapon as well. So let's just talk about a few of the weapons quickly. First, the Gospel of Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a weapon. The battle is about life and death. The battle is about dying forever or living forever with God. That's the battle. And God has used the gospel to bring people from death to life. Paul says, Light, God said, Let light shine out of darkness and has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to man. The gospel used mightily in the lives of, of people to bring them from death to life. The gospel is seen as a weapon. In 1 Timothy, Paul is instructing this young pastor. He says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things, but pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Okay, he's talking about a battle again. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You see, the gospel is for every day. The gospel, reminding yourself of what Jesus has done, is part of your armor. And Paul tells Timothy, take hold of that eternal life to which you were called. Because there are a lot of people opposing you. And this is two verses before that. He talks about the people opposing them. The people that are fighting against his ministry. The weapons of the enemy. They quarrel, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. They're deprived of all truth. A desire for riches. Paul says these are all weapons of the enemy. But you, O oh man of God, take hold of the truth, the eternal life offered in the gospel. We also see that preaching is a weapon. Of course, preaching would be a weapon. The gospel must be preached. It must go out. 
How then are they to call upon him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? This is why it's beautiful to see the good news preached. This is how God, he he breaks the power of darkness in people's lives through the preached gospel. So the gospel of Jesus Christ we see is used mightily in opposition to the enemy. The truth of the word of God is a weapon. People are blind. God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And yet we know that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a weapon. That's why we must all be sound in our doctrine. Why does he tell Titus to be sound in doctrine? So that he can rebuke those who contradict the true doctrine of the gospel. The truth of God's word cannot be suppressed forever. Satan, the devil, Jesus describes in this way, your father, the devil, his will is to do, sorry, your will is to do your father's desires. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the enemy uses lies. The church uses the truth. And the Holy Spirit brings to our remembrance all that the Lord has taught us. That's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. We don't need to tamper with the word. We just need to to state the truth. We we speak the truth in love. In chapter 6 of this letter, he says that by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, you see how truth is tied to to fighting the spiritual fight. You have to know the truth and believe the truth. Thirdly, prayer. Prayer is a weapon. Corporate prayer, personal prayer. Paul would see that your prayers actually do something, of course. And this isn't a pragmatic view of prayer. Again, it's not the genie in the bottle kind of praying. This is a relational prayer. as coming to a father. Children coming to a father who's willing and able to help us. Christ illuminates the the connection of prayer and spiritual battles. When he talks about the demon that couldn't be cast out by anything but prayer. Again, it's none of our business what happens in the spiritual world. But when we pray like Daniel prayed, things happen. We need to pray. Earnestly pray. Pray for godliness and holiness in our land and in our own hearts. Our personal knowledge, fourthly, our personal knowledge of Jesus Christ is a weapon. The love of Christ controls us. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we would know Jesus, that we would have an increased revelation of the knowledge of Him, that our eyes of our hearts would be enlightened that we might know all that Jesus has done. Why do we say that this is a weapon? Because in your personal life, if you know Jesus Christ and you know his character, then you know he's a good shepherd. And you know he's leading and guiding you well. And you know that you can trust him. He has been through fire and death and hell. He knows suffering. 
the fruit of the Spirit, godly living, courageous godly living, is a weapon used by God. You're wondering in this, in this world where everything seems in your minds maybe to be falling apart, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. What do we do? You are confident in your prayers to God. And you live courageously, godly lives. See, that's not really as, as impressive as worldly weapons, right? But this is very effective. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. All these things that he describes as weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, they're normal Christian living kind of things. Sixthly, we see godly fellowship, that we stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Why is that? Because if you go on deliberately sinning after you've heard the truth, there's no sacrifice of sins left, but there's a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire. This is Hebrews 10. So what Paul seems to be saying there is that on the one hand, you have the fellowship, which encourages you in your relationship with God and therefore bolsters you in the time of attack. If you forsake the fellowship, you're going to deliberately keep on sinning. You've heard the truth, but you're going to reject it. Part of your health as a Christian is fellowship together with one another. It's, it's especially seen... So the pinnacle of spiritual warfare was what? It was the cross of Jesus Christ. That was when the battle was at its peak. It was the turning point of battle. Would Jesus go to the cross, perfectly innocent lamb, and die for sinful, repulsive people before God's eyes? And he did. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, speaking of godly fellowship, don't you find it comforting that even Jesus in his human nature he took Peter, James, and John, and he said, come with me. Come with me and let's pray together. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He began to see clearly the wrath that was coming, and he wanted his brothers to come with him, to pray with him. Fellowship's important. It's important in the fight. Forgiveness is seen as a weapon. In this letter, in chapter 4, verse 10, he talks about forgiveness. Whoever you've forgiven, I've forgiven as well. Why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his designs, of his schemes. So to not forgive is to, to buy into Satan's weapons, right? But to forgive is a weapon. It's, it's outwitting Satan himself. And of course, our love for each other is a weapon. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Talking about this church, talking about every fellowship of the saints. When they see us loving each other, it's warfare. The whole world sees it. And what a tragedy that often that is not the case. Here at Meadow Creek, it seems to be the case, praise God, that we love each other well. And finally, what bolsters your soul often in difficult times when you feel like you're going to despair and lose heart, is a knowledge of the inheritance that God has given you. In this letter, Paul says, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
Why? Because we know we have an eternal weight of glory. So your life is perpetual warfare. This is your Christian life. And yet God has not left you alone. He's given you his Holy Spirit, which makes all of these things we've talked about effective. Your prayers are effective. You can live godly lives. You can understand the word of God. You can receive the preached word into your soul. You can understand the truth of sound doctrine. And you can know Jesus well. Okay, I know I'm going long. Let's, the third point quickly, weapons effects. What are the effects of these weapons? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, against the knowledge of God and the gospel of God. We take thoughts captive. We also destroy strongholds, it says in verse 4. C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, he, he really captures this well. You see all Satan and his, his strategies and all Satan, at least from Lewis's perspective, all his weapons. And then you see this Christian man just living a Christian life. And this is how he fights. Of course, this is very scriptural. So what are the effects? The effects in the church is that because we love God and love others and forgive each other, that there's no disunity that Paul was seeing. Because we know our doctrine, there's no false teachers that are, that are causing us to be confused about who God is and what he's called us to do. Because we experience the gospel daily, and the gospel isn't just something you say one time. You pray a prayer of salvation, and then you're good forever. Of course, that's not real. I mean, it can be, but that's not often. God is not beholden to change our hearts because we pray a prayer of salvation at that very moment. But we experience the gospel every day. Jesus Christ died on the cross, not just so that you can be saved, but so you can live as a saved man and woman. So it's not just affecting the church, it's affecting me personally. The effects are that these arguments, these strongholds are destroyed. As we listen to our commander, as we follow the way of gentleness and meekness and godliness, as we believe the promises of Jesus Christ for us, then our thoughts are taken captive. Paul in the Psalms often preaches to himself. He says, hey, soul, Believe God. And this is what we do when we know the truth and the Holy Spirit puts the Word of God into our own hearts. We believe it and we preach to ourselves the truth. Our thoughts are taken captive. Again, another metaphor of warfare. God does this work. We just live as Christians. This is really the takeaway for you. It's not that you have to learn some new weapons and you have to, to do some new, new stuff as a Christian. You need to be confident and diligent in your prayers. You need to, to be courageous in living godly lives. This is a weapon. This is a weapon for you. When you feel like a leaning wall or a tottering fence, as David would say, remember that God is for you. Taking thoughts captive. This is right thinking based on the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. Read it, study it, receive it, and preach it to yourself. Because what does the Word say to you? In Christ it says, I love you. Brother and sister, if you're in Christ, God loves you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is for you, not against you. 
He's a good shepherd and he leads and guides you, yes, in dark valleys sometimes, but it's ultimately to green pastures and still waters. He's never forsaken the righteous. And his son's sacrifice makes you righteous. You're beloved in Christ. He's the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable one. He will not be defeated. He's always watching and caring for his universe and especially for his children. The Scottish Covenanters from about 1679 to 88 called the Killing Times in Scottish history. About 18,000 people, just normal people like you, were hunted down and executed, murdered, tortured. Why? Because they would not submit to the king as the head of the church. The king of England wasn't the head of the church. They said only Jesus is the head of the church. And they were killed. 18,000 people. If you go to Scotland, you'll see their monuments everywhere. What made them strong and courageous? They knew the Word of God. The Holy Spirit lived in them. They were faithful in prayer. And these kinds of things destroyed any hope of these events being used by Satan and his enemies or in his allies in any way. Satan and all the evil plans that he had were put to open shame by these 18,000 courageous men and women who died and multitudes more who were imprisoned. So these are spiritual weapons with spiritual and eternal results. Don't be discouraged if you think, well, all I can do is pray. That's not all you can do. That's what we should all be doing is praying and living godly lives. So I'll conclude with this, verse 6. Paul says he's ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. In other words, I know that you're either going to obey or disobey. I hope your obedience is complete, but I'm ready to punish if there's disobedience. At the end of that letter, he says that the church should examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith or not. He says, test yourselves. So, of course, we've been talking about a spiritual battle, and everyone in this room is on one side or the other. Everybody. There's wheat and there's tares in every church. So I would ask you to examine yourselves, whether or not you're in the faith. What does that mean? Do you trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Is He your only treasure on earth, your only hope? The Gospel is clear. Jesus came and died on the cross for sinners like you and me, that all who would believe in Him would not perish. The Holy Spirit will make you new. He will make you new, a new creation. If you humble yourself before Him and you ask Him and you are called to do this, it's not just a good decision. It's your duty. Call upon Jesus. Run to Jesus, brother and sister. Run to Jesus. Please, run to Christ. This is an eternal fight. This is an eternal battle with eternal consequences. Run to Jesus Christ. This is a real battle for real souls. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your Word. The Word of God is effective and powerful. We thank You that Your Holy Spirit is real. Lord, you live in heaven and, let you, and yet you care about people like us. Please hear our prayers. 
Please enable us to fight the good fight. Help us to use what you've given us. The word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit enliven our godly living and our prayers and the word to good measure. Lord, especially for those who have newly come into membership here, Lord, we know that Satan hates a church that has members who love you. Lord, protect and watch over them. Watch over all of us. May our hope be in you alone and in your strength, not our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.